If you turn to Luke chapter 4, we'll try to take a, a run at figuring out temptation, not on our own, but temptation through what Jesus did when he was here on this earth. As we said last week, we've been thinking about this idea of temptation, and, and the idea is that whatever's in you comes out. Temptation itself isn't inherently bad. Temptation becomes bad when we turn to ourselves in the satisfaction of it. So for example, as we've said, if you're trying to drop some pounds and somebody slides a delicious cake in front of you, you'd probably say, don't tempt me. It doesn't mean it's sinful. It just means that there's this idea of inside of me, there's this battle. Should I or shouldn't I eat the dessert? And you're not helping by sliding that in front of me. That's the idea. So we've been thinking about this. We've thought about it from the Lord's Prayer. We've thought about diagnosing it from James. We saw where it comes from and how it works in James 1, 13 through 16. Last week we ventured into it, but we paused just long enough to think about that idea that temptation is the proving ground on which you discover who you will trust. And I said, I liken the image, and I'll do it again next week, uh, to the Eye of Sauron. Those of you who are the Lord of the Rings fans, you know that the Eye of Sauron is constantly looking for the ring, searching the land. I think that's how we are, in the sense that we are always looking for something or someone to trust. Very often we can place our trust in things that are insufficient for the trust. Some people trust in chariots, as the psalmist says. There's strength. Some trust in the idea of, of money and riches. Some people trust in themselves. The, the person who's great at sports or the person who's great at guitar, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm great at that instrument. I'm great at this sport. I'm great. And they're tempted to take the credit. They're tempted to put their trust in something, their strength or their money that is insufficient to the task of what they should put their trust in, and that's the Lord. And so in our lives, uh, you've felt this, um, you've looked through your life, we're constantly searching, who can I trust? And that temptation is the proving ground when your focus is fixed on something that you shouldn't trust. A temptation is something that you begin to find your joy in, significance in, meaning through. And when it turns to be like that, um, you've got problems. And Jesus faced these temptations. He walked through this time in the wilderness and temptation. And so we want to think through what exactly it is that Jesus endured. And how does the diagnosing of temptation in James chapter 1, how does it find its way working out in the life of Christ? Specifically in the areas that he's tempted. Now last week I showed you some images that your mind discerned between the two if you were with us. You saw the side and the front image, and your mind discerns that. And so what discernment is to the mind, trust is to your soul. Like we say, you search around. You're looking for something to trust, just like your mind when it sees something. It might see something that looks funny or off or different, but then you start discerning what it really is. There's an image on the screen I want you to look at. Look right in the middle of it, if you would. Just stare at it. I apologize to those who are watching online. Just stare at it. 
Do you notice anything going on as you're looking in the middle? You'll find that the edges begin to move. I can tell you the edges aren't moving. And so as I tell you that, you say to yourself, if you believe me that there's, this isn't a movie, the edges might seem to be moving, but they're not. It's an optical illusion. It's something that your brain is telling you. But your mind says that's not true. It's an optical illusion. So what discernment is to your mind is you see something like this, and it seems to be moving, and you say, but it's not moving. You embrace what is true. The same thing as it relates to temptation. When your eye is moving around, who will I trust? What will I trust in? The truth and trust, according to the Bible, your faith, should ultimately be rested in God. And that's why we call this series Trust God. You know, when you, you scratch away at life, it really boils down to that. Who are you going to trust? You trust yourself or something that you can manufacture or something that's been given? Or do we trust God? So that trust is to the soul, what discernment is to the mind. And last week we began looking at that idea of Luke chapter 4. And if you're over there and if you've snapped out of the, 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 the image that you've been looking at, kind of creeps you out after a while. Uh, Luke chapter 4, we walked through last week as a really quick review, the first four verses. And we said when it comes to temptation, the first four verses really represent the idea of, of comfort. That Jesus was tempted in the realm of comfort. So if you look at that, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And then when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now for Jesus, the temptation was, you're in the wilderness for 40 days. He's been doing rounds with the, the devil. This didn't just begin at this point. For 40 days, the enemy has been trying to get him to rely on himself. And we talked about last week how this just didn't start at this point. This has been a battle through the ages. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, the enemy has been trying to outflank, outmaneuver, outgun the God of the universe. And this is just simply the latest round. But it's different now. Because after his baptism, when his ministry starts, he's led into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Well, that's because it's a picture of complete desolation. There's no resources there. There's just simply a proving ground. Who are you going to trust? I think as we said last week as well, there's a the image of the Children of Israel, isn't that where they stumbled? Isn't that where they said, let's trust ourselves? Whether it was the, the bail that they set up or the food that they demanded. That God, God wasn't trustworthy in their minds. And that was what's called sin. That's what sin is. When you trust something other than the one who you should trust. So Jesus finds himself here and the enemy comes at the end of that 40 days, the pristine time. And so Luke records that. He doesn't give us the blow by blow of the entire interaction, just at the end. But we find ourselves in the sandals of Christ when he comes next to him and says, hey, 
All you have to do is turn those stones into bread. As we said last week, God has every right to turn stones into bread. It's it's not a hard thing. Jesus is God. But what we did is we asked you to entertain the idea, and we're going to think about this more today, as as, as if Jesus took his, his attributes, the independent use of his attributes, and kind of put them in his back pocket. I'm not going to lead with those. Why is that? Well, because Jesus, in all the ways Israel failed, can't. Meaning that he's going to trust in all the ways Adam and Eve walked away. Jesus doesn't. He endures. He says, man does not live by bread alone. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. In all the ways that Israel failed, looking to bread instead of looking to God and trusting God when they didn't have bread. But God will take care of us. They didn't do that. They bought into comfort. And last week we talked about the fact that materially and relationally and spiritually, we do the same thing, don't we? We go through the same times in which we don't have something we want. And what happens here is the eye of your soul starts looking around. What can I trust? You latch on to something. And what's inside of you, this lack of faith, latches on something it never should have lasted on. That's a temptation. And the thing is, you've got the enemy throwing gas in the fire. You're living in, swimming in the waters of a culture that says, trust in this and trust in this and trust in this. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that's what commercials are. That's fundamentally what commercials are. You don't have this product. Your life is not as good as it could be. It's not as comfortable. We swim in these waters, commercialism. Uh, You're up against a lot. That's why I'm glad that Jesus hit it out of the park. Because when I don't, I just plead that he has for me. He has given me that righteousness, that alien righteousness to me, that as I trust in him, God sees me through Christ always saying yes to the Father. So that practically, I say I'd rather want comfort than trust in you. If it was up to me, I'd fail every time. You'd fail every time. We find ourselves this morning, though, that Jesus passed the first test. But what about the second test? What about the second moment? Round one is done, you could say. Now we find ourselves in the next. So if the first area was control, or excuse me, comfort, the second area is this idea of control. First is in that area. Next is here. Look at 5 through 8. It says there, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God In him only shall you serve. This idea of trusting the Father when it comes to the temptation to control, Jesus did it masterfully. There's a lot of questions in these verses. The idea is that what's this moment of time? What was he shown? Uh, Does the enemy really have that kind of control over this? I thought God created the earth. What is Jesus Christ really doing? This idea of worship. 
What was involved with that? I think there's a lot of questions, but I, I don't think this is where it started. It's important for you to understand there's a, there's a lot of history here, just like last week. And when you begin to think about this idea of control, I want to tease this out a little bit more before we jump in with both feet. Uh, you might say, yeah, I, I, I like control. Who doesn't? Sign me up on the list of a controlling person. But I'd like to tease it out. Do you ever struggle with anger? Maybe depression. Maybe you call it frustration. Maybe you call it melancholy. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can dress up this idea of control. But fundamentally, it doesn't matter how you dress it up. If if you find yourself frustrated and angry and lashing out, or find yourself depressed, find yourself wishing you had more than you do have, if you find yourself overspending, if you find yourself running up the credit cards, you got a problem with control. You do. You see, this idea of depression is really depression because you can't control things you like, you'd like to. Well, if you have an issue with anger, uh, let's just call it frustration. That's a more gentle way to say it. That's what I do. I say I'm frustrated. I'm not angry. Seems to make it seem better. Problem I have is when I stop in the moment, My issue is not with anybody outside of me. My issue is with me. I want to control something, and that person's getting in the way. I want to control something, and that thing isn't working. You ever do that? We're going to talk about that. But I think control is all through our life. And as the enemy rolls up to Christ, puts this bait in front of him. What are you going to do? Before we jump into this, I'd like to kind of expand this idea because it's significant what is going on here. It's not the first time it started. We said in Genesis chapter 3, that's when the battle of the ages started. But before time actually even began, uh, mind blower, this idea of the incarnation was talked about. We're not going to go through all of the scripture, but I'd like you to turn over to Philippians chapter 2 because I think this frames for us Uh, more depth, pushes our roots down, you could say, into this passage to understand it in, I think, a greater way. Paul is talking to the people of Philippi who seem to not been getting along. And he uses an example that's the most profound example of the humanity of Christ that we have as far as in a didactic or teaching way. He's talking about in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about being of the same mind, same love, being of full accord of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's he's writing a prescription of people who don't get along. And he's helping them understand what you need to do, not what they need to do. What you need to do is be of the same mind. But what you have to do is you have to see them differently. You have to humble yourself. You have to not look at them as fulfilling something in your life, but you have to say, God, how can I be an answer in their life? That's great advice when it comes to relational friction. We don't have time to get into all that, but that's what you needed to know. 
that he keeps going moving forward. Let each one not look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then verse 6 happens of Philippians 2. And it's, it's, like, um, it's like a bomb. A theological bomb goes off in the passage where he says, Who, though he, talking about Christ, was in the form of God. And if you like to write in your Bible, uh, you could write that phrase, form of God. It's the, the Greek word is morphe. From metamorphosis is the idea. He was the very essence of God. The very essence. What we talked about in that creed that we recited. There's no doubt about it. It's not as if when Arius showed up and said he's a created being and began to create songs about that. So the average person started wondering about that and the bishops came in and said, listen, he is God of gods. He's not, didn't become a god. He wasn't born in this passage and they rightly said he's the form of God. But it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be retained. So this is the idea. Humanity has to be reconciled. Jesus, fully God, says, I don't need to stay here. I need to serve. I'll serve the Father by executing the plan to redeem humanity. So in the very form God did not think equality with God. He didn't say, no, I want to keep what's mine. I want to stay in control. That's the backdrop. Verse 7, but emptied himself. That's the putting in the back pocket. Volunteering, surrendering the independent use of his attributes. So when you read in the Gospels that Jesus knows what they're thinking, is he knowing, is he walking around reading people's minds? I mean, how cool would that be? But that's a bad picture. He's not reading anybody's mind. When it comes to walking on the water or healing somebody, is he just doing that because he, he's God? He can No. He's perfectly human. The Holy Spirit is moving through him. The Holy Spirit is giving him insight. All of these things as a human, he's not drawing on his own independent use of his attributes. He's taken on the form of a servant. Same same construction, form of God, now form of the servant, the very essence of a servant. He's become human. In that moment, control is given over to the Father. I'm not in control. I'm a human. I'm walking, I'm proving that I have to walk by faith just like those who will come after me. I have to walk by faith. And it shows that I'm perfectly the son of God. I qualify to be the savior of humanity. And he gives us an example of what does it look like to say no to control from the very beginning. Isn't that incredible? That's mind-blowing to me. Fully God, fully human, taking his authority, his independent use of his attributes, putting them in his back pocket so that you would never say, You'd never be able to say with any kind of a legitimacy, he doesn't understand me. He doesn't get me. Never sinning. Never having flesh. But when it comes to human, he gets you. He understands. 
He qualifies to be your savior. Takes on that form of a servant. Who is he serving? Now be careful here. Is he serving you? Be careful. Because if he's serving you, you're the object of his affection. And my friends, while you might be fantastic, you're a rotten object of the affections of God. You see, God, it would be sin for Christ to have as the object of his affection you. And I know there are tunes on Christian radio that might want you to believe that. Uh, One particular one, it's called Above All. The idea that Jesus thought of you above all. While I appreciate the sincerity of the writer, he is wrong. Capital W-R-O-N-G. Jesus was thinking of the Father, but this is the beauty. Almost like a firework that goes off, he thinks of the Father, pleasing the Father, and that brilliant burst of that focus we see and we're caught up in. And we're loved, but not as the center, but as the recipient. That's incredibly good news. Goes on from there. We see this idea of Jesus giving up control in all sorts of scenes. Uh, John chapter 12. Just going to rifle through some John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry. My soul is troubled, he says. Uh, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's as if all, all of this history has been rolling up into this point of let go of control. We're not at the end of my life. I'm looking to be betrayed, go to the cross. He said, my soul is troubled. He's really human. He's really moved. Shall I say, save me from this hour? You know, I can't see behind that passage, but that sounds an awful lot like at the end of the passage we're going to look at, it says the devil came back or the devil went away for another appropriate time or time of opportunity, the original says. And when Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? I don't know what's going on in the spiritual realm, but that sounds an awful lot like something Satan would want him to do. Save me from this hour. I don't want to be out of control. But he says, Father, glorify your name, the proving ground. Who are you going to trust, Christ? And he says, I trust the Father. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 28. You know what's amazing about that? There's only three times that happens in the Bible, in the Gospels, that something happens and then a voice comes from heaven. Only three times. This is one of them. It's as if the Father is so overwhelmingly pleased with the Son that he is trusting him. He's relinquishing control. You are the one that I can trust. You are appropriate. You are the one I've put my hope and my trust in, in my humanity, so I can trust in you. And the Father is so moved that he can't help but speak. Speak from the heavens. The clouds open and speaks. The crowd doesn't even get it. The crowd stood by. They heard it. They thought it was thunder. But Jesus got it. That's an incredible picture. All the way through, whether 12... John 12, 49, Jesus says, I speak on the authority of my Father. Jesus talks about in the Garden of Gethsemane, your will be done. 
Jesus before Pilate. You'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. No authority. Since you have control, you don't have control. Pilate, you think you're, you're rolling the dice here. You're figuring out how do you maneuver around people. You feel like you're in control and have to manipulate. You'd have no control over me. If it wasn't given by the Father. Jesus says in John 19, 30, it is finished. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. Jesus completely trusted the Father through his entire life. The enemy comes and tempts him with control, tempts you with control. He resists it. So this is elongated through his entire life. But if you find your way back to Luke chapter 4, uh, let's look at the, what this particular interaction look like, looks like and let's see what we can glean from it. The devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it was delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. This idea of that showing the world, the kingdoms of the world has the idea of, and we don't know exactly what it looked like, but he shows them the silhouettes of the the dominant areas of the world. It's not cosmos like a globe. The word that is used here speaks more to the idea of the inhabitants of the world. Somehow he can see the inhabitants of the world or the, the power centers. Do you want to make a difference, Christ? That if you do this, you don't have to go to the cross. All you have to do is relinquish to me. Just trust me. Don't trust the Father. And where he says there, to you I will give all this authority. It's emphatic. It has the idea, you, you and you alone. You can be the big shot, Christ. I'll step back. You'll step forward. What you've wanted all along will be complete. This sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? This sounds like the Emperor. This sounds like the villains that rise up. You can have it all. You can have it all. You can have it all. It creeps even into our scripts. The question I have for you is it crept into your life. Do you find? We just talked about the idea of frustration or anger. You're not a Hollywood movie. But you find yourself being the, the main actor. And giving into this. It says, for it has been delivered to me. Delivered to me. Is that true? The best we know is that uh, it says the world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Uh, something happened in the garden that seems to give this uh, permission. Well, you could say, well, the enemy is just lying. Well, Luke never stops him and Jesus never stops him. Jesus doesn't say, well, that's not true. He doesn't do it. Look at it this way. It's almost as if in the garden when Adam and Eve decided to walk away from God when they decided to say, we'd rather be in control than you. Same thing happened. It's almost, picture it like this. This is what I do in my mind. Picture it almost like they're given a scepter. They're given some, some significant thing of that they're the ruler. And they're, they're given to that and they're holding on to it. And then when the enemy comes and says, did God really say? I kind of picture Adam uh, when they're reaching for the fruit or he's receiving the fruit from Eve. It's almost as if he goes to the enemy. Hey, hold this for a second. And the enemy takes off. So he has the sense the ruler. And so when he says he's delivered them to me. And matter of fact, and I will give it to whom I will. 
It has this idea of authority. So Jesus, if you want the authority given back, I'll hand you the scepter. I'll give it back to you. If that's what you're here to do. That's what you're here to express the control of God. That's what I'll do. The problem is, is the payoff for that. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Just, just, just worship me. Just a little bit. You get all this. It's kind of like the price is right. And all this can be yours. If the price is right. The problem with that is, it's not living by faith. You see, you, you don't worship the enemy. You don't worship Satan. Why? Because he's not the object of faith, meaning that he as a person is not sufficient to be that object. He is not to be worshipped. Why? Because he isn't great. Because he's not God. What's interesting is this specific, this specific verse that he pulls from is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And in the context, it's the children of Israel. God is playing the, the script forward. And he says this, And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then here's the verse. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, and you shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear. This is interesting. The word worship can also be interpreted as fear. So the enemy here says, if you just worship me. But the idea is fear. I'm supposed to fear the Lord, meaning that he is so to be worshipped. To worship anything else makes no sense. So I need to fear him and not the other things because he is the one. Not that we cower in fear, but we reverence in fear. That's the idea. And when he says, he's the only one that I should worship. You shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. It's as if Moses in Deuteronomy plays it forward. You're going to get to the point that you're tempted. When you get this and you get this and you get this and you get this, it might seem like you're really in control, Israel. Don't forget, he's the one who's in control. Don't forget, he's the one you should worship. Don't forget, he's the one you fear. He's the centerpiece of your life. Don't let that drift away. And how specifically you're supposed to do that. This is fascinating because in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15, he says, this is what's going to happen before he even tells them that. He gives them the antidote, which I think is an antidote for us today. All the way back in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, he says... When you get in the land and you're going to be tempted to forget, tempted to, 
to stop fear, tempted to stop worshiping, tempted to think you're in control. How do you get past that? How do you, sitting in Georgia today, how do you have any hope to not give in to the anger and the frustration? How do you, how do you thread that needle of that person who really annoys you, that spouse that drives you up a wall sometimes, those kids, that coworker, that frustration that you feel when you think about them? How do you, that quest for control isn't all that. You want to control, you want to make your environment. How do you get past that? Well, he says here, the idea of being saturated by God's word. If you, when you constantly remember who God is, what's happening is here is almost as if you have a, a fuel gauge. When you constantly remember who God is, it's like your fuel tank is filling up. He's in control. He's in control. In all the stories of the Bible, who's standing? He's in control. He's in Christ. He's in control. The, the, the disciples, when the church is born, they're, they're, they're fighting persecution. Who's in control? Clearly, over and over again, they talk about the Lord's in control. You see this, this idea of the Lord's in control. When you're reading about this, now all of a sudden, when that person who bothers you comes into your life, well, the Lord's in control. They're not in control. I don't need to look to them. That person, God has put them in my life for specific reasons. That spouse, that child, they drive me crazy. But you know what? The Lord's, the Lord's doing something. He's in control. But the way you put yourself in a position to remember that is doing exactly what happens in Deuteronomy 6. Write them on the doorposts, the truth. Hang them on the wall. Talk about these truths. Parents, talk to your kids about these things. Your kids are frustrated. They're anxious. They're, they're depressed. They're all over the map. They think someone's in control in their life. Other situations, feelings. Friends, they feel out of control. Let me ask you something. How are you helping them understand who God is and that he's in control? I'm convinced a lot of the melancholy anxiety that people feel today is solved right here, all the way back in Deuteronomy, exemplified in Christ. Are you spending time in the word? Because when the word is in your life, you recognize who's in control. You're able to value things in your life. When you're the eye of Sauron, who am I going to trust? Who am I going to trust? You've been in the word. Well, I know I'm going to trust. I can't figure everything out. When I'm in a situation that's over my head, I ask myself, what can I do? What's my responsibility in this situation? And when I find that the water's over my head, I go from what can I do, what I'm responsible to do, what should I do? And if I can't affect change, I can't change that person, then I say, God, help me. I, say, I pray. God, help me to see you in this. Help me to believe you're in control. Help me to understand. Because what happens when you're tempted to control what's inside of you, that desire to control, parents, you understand this. The anger starts happening. You start screaming because you can get control over your kids. Believe me. If I yell loud enough, everybody stops. You see, but the problem is, I get control in the moment, but I'm not really in control. See, because I'm not helping them understand who God is. I'm not slowing down. Well, I got a schedule to keep. Well, that may be the problem. You want your schedule to go a certain way. And when we look at this passage, we can find ourselves in the wilderness of family or job or whatever. The enemy slides up to us, do this or do this or do this. You'll be in control. You need to push back. 
Say, no, the Lord's in control. What am I responsible to do? What can I do? What should I do? There was a grandfather wanted to teach his son this lesson in Kentucky. Uh, and son was talking about the fact that he can't understand the Bible. And some people say that, well, I, I can't read the Bible. I don't read well or I don't retain what I remember or what I see. His grandfather was hearing that from his grandson. And he said to him as he was making some food, the, stole, the stove was uh, coal heated. So you had to throw coal in to get the stove heated up. And so he said to this grandchild who's complaining, I don't remember the Bible. What good is it reading the Bible? It's not my world. It's a world long ago. He said to the young man, he handed him the coal bucket. It was really like a coal basket. Handed it to him, said, we need some more coal. Can you run down to the river? Or excuse me, we need some water. Can you run down to the river and get some water in the, the bucket and bring it back? So the young child says, okay. So he takes it and going down to the river, fills it up, notices as he's coming back, there's really holes all through it. It's more of a basket than a bucket. And it's leaking everywhere. So he walks back up. By the time he gets to the house, there's no water left in the bucket. And the grandfather says, you got to run. You got to fill up, you got to run. And he's like, okay. So he runs down to the creek, fills up the bucket, this dirty coal bucket and runs it back up to the house. By the time he gets to the house, it's empty again. He says, I can't do this. He goes, listen, you need to run faster. Just run faster. So he takes his coal bucket down to the river again, dips it in the water, runs as fast as he can, comes up to the kitchen. Grandfather, I can't do this. It's empty again. He said, but you notice what happened. It's that old dirty coal bucket. It looks like new been washed. There's no dirt. There's no dust in it. What seemed to be futile to you actually cleaned the bucket. Same way the word of God is. You might think, what good is it to read the word of God? It's cleaning you. You may not understand everything, but there's something that's happening. It's called the, the water of the word. When you spend your time in, what happens is that meter, of who's in control? God's in control. So when the enemy slides up next to us, says, hey, you don't deserve that. You can control them. Just that, that flash of anger. Maybe you turn it inward. You get depressed. That's just simply outward anger turned inward on yourself. But if you've been spending time in the word, that God's in control. He's made me this way. When you're insecure, I'm not as bright as I'd like to be. But here's the thing. God's made you a certain way. He's made you a specific reason. He's in control. Have faith in what he's doing. Don't let somebody else put a measuring stick on you and say you're not good enough. So listen, God has made me this way, so I thank you. The proving ground. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I don't need to seek to be in control. I don't need to be seeking something other than I am. I just need to trust you. And while in the Judean wilderness... Jesus faced the enemy and he was shown all the kingdoms of this world. We're in the wilderness away from our heavenly father right now. We're not at home. Although it's green and, and lush compared to a wilderness, we're living in a spiritual wilderness. Trust the Lord, would you? He cares for you. He's doing something in you. If you've been discouraged, you've been frustrated, be encouraged. His kindness is at work in your life. 
Trust him. Spend time with him. Encourage others to do the same. As you do that, as you're looking for somebody to trust throughout the week, the eye will fix on, on Christ. And you'll walk in faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you've given us this truth. We thank you that we've been able to spend this time some rich, fertile areas of your word. We admit there's not a person in this room who doesn't love control, uh, doesn't um, really get addicted to control. As we find ourselves in those places, we ask that you'd help us. We'd help that you would awaken us to our need for you. Awaken us to our uh, lack of control. Uh, If we thought about it for very long, we'd probably lose our mind at how little control we have in this life. None of us here even is keeping our heart beating. You are the sustainer of that. So help us to remember if that's true, then who are we to think that we're in control? Who are we to think and be so arrogant to believe we are? Help us to just simply recognize reality and trust you because you are the sustainer. So we pray that you would remind us of our salvation. Thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to salvation. And that kindness that has brought us to you will also sustain us. And so we pray that you'd remind us of this and that we'd relinquish that temptation to control things. Help us to learn under your hand to trust you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.